Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 2nd, 2014, and my guest is Yuval Levin. He is the Hertog Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, the founding editor of National Affairs, and author of The Great Debate, Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine, and the Birth of Right and Left. Yuval, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks very much for having me. Our topic for today is your book, The Great Debate. Uh, you begin with the observation that the political divide between the left and the right today is something we take for granted without thinking about where it comes from. And you focus on two men, Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, as a way to appreciate the origins of that divide. Let's start with a brief sketch of their lives. Tell us a little bit about both Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine. Well, uh, Edmund Burke was an Irish-born English politician and writer of the late 18th century. He was born in uh, in 1730. He was active from the 1760s until uh, he died at the very end of the 18th century, 1797. He was a member of the House of Commons for 30 years, uh, a Whig, a patient, gradual reformer of British institutions, uh, and a staunch opponent of what we would think of now as a kind of liberal radicalism, especially as embodied in the, in the French Revolution. He's been thought of as one of the fathers of modern conservatism because of his emphasis on generational continuity, on gradualism, on respect for tradition and for existing institutions, and really because of his skepticism about human power and human knowledge, uh, and again, his criticism of the radicalism of the French Revolution. Thomas Paine is someone we might know better in America. He was an English-born immigrant to America, uh, a contemporary of Burke's. He was seven years younger than Burke and, uh, and, and died about nine years after him. Uh, he became, of course, one of the most eloquent and important voices championing the cause of independence uh, for the colonies, the author of Common Sense, of the Crisis Papers, an important activist for independence uh, here. And then, as revolution was brewing in France about a decade later, he went there, uh, he went to Paris, and became an influential advocate for the revolutionaries' cause as an essayist and an activist, especially as a kind of spokesman for the cause of the French revolutionaries to the English-speaking world. Um, Paine, like Burke, was a master of the English language, uh, a wonderful writer, and was a fervent believer in the potential of Enlightenment ideas to, to, to sort of uproot corrupt, oppressive regimes and advance the cause of justice and equality. He's thought of as one of the fathers of modern progressivism or of the modern left because of his emphasis on, especially on liberating the individual from the restraints of tradition, the authority of the past, his extraordinary faith in the power of human reason, the power of the new science of society uh, to reshape the world, and his desire really to break with the past and build social institutions from scratch uh, on the proper foundations. He was one of the faces of, uh, of late 18th century radicalism. Burke and Payne knew each other. They met several times. They exchanged letters. Uh, most importantly, for studying their debate as a debate, they publicly answered one another's published writings. Some of their most important writings were in response to one another. And their disagreement extended well beyond their direct confrontations. They each, over time, voiced a worldview that was very much at odds with the other over some of the most important, most fundamental questions of liberal democratic political thought. And so 
their debate really offers us a way to think about the basic divisions in our kind of politics uh, as they appeared in what was basically the, the first iteration of a left-right divide. So let's talk about the French Revolution, uh, 1789. Is that correct? Have the date right? Yeah, it started in 1789 uh, in response to a combination of factors, uh, of, uh, really in direct response to a very difficult economic time, but uh, of course in response to uh, what the revolutionaries and much of the public in France viewed as an especially oppressive uh, uh, French regime, uh, the monarchy denying people basic rights. And the French Revolution, which we sometimes associate with the American Revolution because it, it followed about a decade after it and expressed itself in some similar ways, was much more radical. The French made a case for really breaking with the past. They understood themselves to be, uh, to be advocating for a new Enlightenment politics that would allow us to escape all of the burdens of the past and find a, uh, a path beyond, uh, beyond war, beyond poverty, really beyond politics. Um, and so... It was a very radical expression of Enlightenment liberalism. Ba-bum, ba-bum, bum, bum. So in the backdrop – with that as the backdrop, both men wrote on their reaction to the initial stages of that revolution. Um, and how did they differ? What was their perspective? Uh, Payne, obviously a supporter. Burke, uh, I would say, from pure writing, was horrified at the prospect of those ideas spreading. Uh, so talk about why they – what their differences were in, in thinking about the revolution and, and what were the reasons for those differences. Yeah. It's an interesting question because Burke and Payne uh, had been more or less on the same side of the American question in the previous decade. Uh, Payne, of course, was a great champion of American independence in very principled, liberal – we would think of as radical terms – uh, Burke supported the Americans because although he thought that Parliament had the right to tax them as it chose to, he thought the, the British Parliament was behaving foolishly uh, and that the Americans were right to resist. Uh, so they ended up on the same side ultimately, but for very different reasons. And those very different reasons led them to be in very different places on the question of France, where for Burke, the French Revolution was basically the epitome of everything that he had been concerned about in, in the politics of the West in the previous 15 years. Uh, Burke was a great believer in continuity, in gradualism, in political change that was made possible by building on the best of your country's traditions to address the worst. Um, and what Burke was not a reactionary. He was not a continental conservative, a kind of throne and altar conservative. Uh, he was a, a believer in progress. He thought the present was better than the past in just about every respect. Uh, but he also thought that it became better by, as I say, building on the best of itself. And so for him, the ability to build on the past is the essence of progress. And what he feared was happening in France was that the, the French were breaking with their own traditions. The French were trying to start from scratch in the most radical possible way, and he thought that this could only lead to disaster, that this was not an advance for liberalism at all, but that it would lead to totalitarianism. And there are passages in Burke's writing on France that really eerily predict the rise of a Napoleon-type figure, of a military dictator who would, um, who would use the circumstances created by the revolution to undermine all of the principles of the revolution. And so for Burke, this was this – was the way in which liberalism could go wrong. It was uh, the epitome of everything he was worried about 
in the radicalism of the sort of left side of uh, of the politics of liberal societies like his own. Paine saw in the French Revolution the great promise of the liberal age. He thought that the French finally understood in total what could be made possible by uh, the new ideas, the new science of politics, and that they were going all out. They were not compromising. They were going to make it work. And so he had great faith in their ability to put in place an entirely new system built on rational principles that could really overcome some of the great obstacles to human progress uh, of the past. And so what you see in them are two liberals. They both believed in the liberal society, as we would understand it, in a free society with a democratic element to its regime. Uh, they both believed in, in, in rights. They both believed especially in the importance of property rights. They had an idea that we would identify with a kind of classical liberalism today, but they came at it from very different places, and so it led them to very different views. And the reason I think that it sheds light on the left-right divide is that in our kind of society, in, in the United States and in Britain, um, the, our basic political debates are liberal debates. Both sides do believe in the free society. Both sides share a lot in common. The debate is in a sense between the 40-yard lines, but it's nonetheless a very, very profound debate about the meaning of, of, our, of our liberties and our rights and about the purpose of our politics. And Burke and Payne, because they're arguing about such consequential events, make very, very explicit some differences that sometimes are harder to see uh, in, in our kind of politics. I have to confess, as I was reading the book, uh, I found myself sympathizing with both men's views. Which I'm I, glad to hear it. Which That's, is some... Uh, which is some measure of what you're talking about, that, that there's a, there's a, there are broad areas of agreement. But I even yeah. found them – I found myself agreeing with both of their views when they disagreed profoundly, which is not, <laughs> not always the best sign. I, and it's a tribute to your um, uh, fairness to both men. But I think – would it be correct to say that you are more of a Burkean than a, a follower of Thomas Paine? Yes, I, I am. Uh, I'm more of a Burke, and I think Burke is ultimately right that the, the what we think of as a liberal society is not the result of a great break from the Western tradition that was made possible by Enlightenment ideas, but is in fact the epitome of the Western tradition, the achievement of the Western tradition that gradually, over time, uh, improved upon itself to the point where, by the by, the time of the Enlightenment, especially in Britain and America. It achieved an extraordinary balance between liberty and order, and that balance is what we value in our society. And that balance has to be maintained by understanding its roots, has to be maintained by building on the best of itself, by gradual improvement, uh, rather than seeing our politics as the beginning of a great break from the past, of, the, of an overcoming of politics that, uh, that, that through a kind of social progress will ultimately become possible. So I believe in a politics of conserving the best of our society to address the worst, and, which is a conservative politics and a Burkean politics. Uh, but, you know, there's no question that Paine articulates ideas that are very much a part of our tradition. There's, a, there's an inclination among some conservatives to think of today's left, of American progressivism, as a kind of foreign implant, as, a, as an import from Germany, uh, an invention of the 19th century, I think that that's just not true. And it's impossible to read Paine and even to read Jefferson and think that that's true. The, the, the left strand of our politics is very deeply rooted in our political tradition and speaks for a point of view about our politics that has always been part of it, uh, that has always been here, and that was very much part of the American political discussion at the time of the founding. We've had a left and right uh, as long as we've known ourselves. I think one of the challenges of Burke 
it, he's, he's just no fun. You know, you, you, Payne's promising you the, the moon uh, and he's very eloquent in, in his promise. And Burke is saying, you know, we ought to just – the best is the enemy of the good and uh, we ought to – we can't get there from here and we've got to be more patient. And, of course, that's a tough sell. I think it's yeah. a, a tough sell to the – to the electorate today, we'll come back and talk a little bit later about yeah, it's, some of the challenges of it. Yeah, that's a problem that conservatives deal with all the time. And I, I, I think maybe another way to put that is that uh, pain begins from a from very high expectations yeah. of human yeah. possibilities. He thinks that we're really capable of a dramatically different and better way of life, uh, of, of really overcoming our faults. And so there's no excuse for failure. He looks out at the status quo and everything that isn't working, he says, is absolutely unacceptable. Burke begins from much lower expectations. He says human beings are fallen creatures, uh, we're very broken, and in fact, he's surprised that anything works in society and so thinks that when anything does work, we have to value it. We have to preserve uh, what's good about it. We have to build on it rather than throw it out and start over because it's not easy to build successful, effective social institutions. And so his expectations being much lower he always wants to make sure that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. He agrees there's a lot to improve, there's a lot that needs changing, but the change needs to look like building on what we have. Uh, and so it's true for him, the promise is always is always tempered. So because of my um, philosophical training, limited uh, understanding of philosophy, I always associate Paine's view with the um, the Cartesian view, Descartes' view yeah. that. That emphasizes the power of reason, and in contrast, I think of Burke's view as being a pragmatist view in the philosophical sense of the word. That he recognizes the limits of reason, and he relies on tradition, what we now would would glibly call uh, crowdsourcing or the the, yeah. the wisdom of crowds, or a Hayekian um, evolution of culture and and practices a way of of improving society rather than the the engineering top-down approach. So I'm very sympathetic to the Burkean, um, the philosophical underpinnings of Burke. The problem is, is that as, as we're talking about it, the, the marketing of it, the appeal of it is very uh, limited because it basically says, trust what you've got. Uh, it's not bad. And what you think is better may not be. Uh, it can be used as an apology for racism, uh, mm-hmm. the monarchy, uh, you know, cultural and societal practices that are emergent from the bottom up that are unattractive. And Payne is promising you this great, um, this new world, this vision, this utopian ideal that's definitely within, it's not, he's not saying that men will fly, but yeah. he's saying will soar. And of course, uh, doesn't work out that way. One of the things I wanted to, let's come back to the French Revolution. Every time I read Payne and said, good point, good point, and thought about Burke, eh, not so exciting – you're confronted with the reality of the of the French Revolution and other episodes where where uh, human beings are promised to be remade from a blank slate, and uh, Burke was definitely onto something there. That that's a little bit dangerous. Yeah, I think that's very well put. I, I, and I would say the, the 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 Hayekian character of Burke's approach to knowledge is very very important. In fact, Hayek in the Constitution of Liberty at, at the beginning of the book draws this distinction himself between the Cartesians on the one hand and what he thinks of as the Scottish-English Enlightenment on the other. He's got this great image of the, of the French garden and the English garden. Uh, 
perfectly geometrical, yeah. uh, perfectly designed on the one hand, but no flowers actually grow this way. <laughs> and the English garden is you let things grow where they are and you trim. Uh, you, ma- you make them the best of what they already are. Uh, I think there's there's very, very deep wisdom in that distinction, and it's very much the distinction you find between Burke and Payne. The important thing to keep in mind, and Burke always tried to do that, though it was harder for him in his uh, in his French revolutionary writings, is that Burke was a reformer. Uh, Burke was not a defender of the status quo. Good his point. his purpose in in politics, what got him up in the morning, was not defending uh, everything that existed, but rather improving on it by building on it. And so he spent a great deal of his career trying to improve the British system, to restrain the power of the king. In the 1770s uh, and 60s, really, he spent a great deal of time working very hard to keep the, the monarchy out of uh, the, the sort of everyday management of the British government. Uh, he, again, supported the Americans, essentially, because uh, he thought that uh, they were being mistreated through the tax policies of the, of the North government. Um, he reformed the British uh, criminal law. He reformed uh, the British imperial practices. He was very opposed to the mistreatment of the natives of India. He was very protective of Irish Catholics. Uh, he was an opponent of slavery very, very early, one of the first signatories of the Wilberforce petition. Uh, and so Burke was a reformer, but he was a certain kind of reformer. He was a reformer who believed that you needed to improve things in order to protect the best of the system, that if you let problems fester, that would invite radicals to come in and overthrow what was good about the system. Uh, and so there is a way in which his way of thinking can say, well, we can't really do that well, so let's just be happy with what we have. But Burke tried where he could to make it clear that that was not his intention, that in fact his intention was to try to do as well as we could, understanding that human beings and human institutions could go wrong much more easily than they could go right, so that improvement and change had to be undertaken carefully. Of course, in his revolutionary writings, in his anti-French revolution writings, uh, he was much more protective than he was reformist because he saw a very, very dangerous threat to the very means by which improvement could happen. Uh, The idea that you would have a total break with the past would leave you with no raw materials to build improvements on. Uh, And that was his great fear. And I want to go a little more deeply into their uh, philosophical differences, but before I do, I want to ask you a question. When you discuss these two impressive men and their friends, you can't help but be struck by the extraordinary flowering of political and philosophical thought in the 1770 to 1800 period. You have Jefferson, Madison, Washington, Adams, Franklin, Samuel Johnson, Edward Gibbon, Adam Smith, and you eloquently call it a, quote, profusion of philosophical and practical genius. It made me wonder, and I'm not the first person to wonder this, where are those people today? <laughs> are yeah. they just doing something else? Was that time an incredible outlier? Or have we romanticized the distinctive uh, talents of, of that set of people? Yeah, it, it's really one of the great questions. I, I, there are a few periods like this. You can think of, uh, you can think of Athens in the, in the 4th and 5th century BC. You can think of a few other times that are like the Anglo-American uh, profusion of genius, as you say, in in the late 18th century, uh, both in America and in Britain at the same time. And, and the people you describe really are, are Burke's and Paine's circles. Uh, Paine was close friends with all of those Americans you listed. Burke uh, knew all of those British uh, geniuses that you listed. He was uh, He's got a great exchange of letters with Adam Smith, 
he was he was a close friend of Samuel Johnson, uh, and it, it does make you wonder. I, I think there is a reason. I think that um, they were living in a period of extraordinary flux, where uh, where things were changing theologically and economically and politically all at the same time in ways that drew people of great genius into political life. Um, you know, I think that we have some very impressive people scattered around today. There are some very impressive people in the business world. There are some very impressive people uh, here and there in public life. But I don't think it's fair to say that we have the same, the same level of extraordinary genius, but it's just scattered. I think that times of crisis call out uh, people of greatness. And, you know, you wonder sometimes, how did we end up with Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War? Uh, I think it's not a coincidence. I think the time calls out a, a certain kind of ability uh, and pushes down people who normally would be in politics, who are just strivers, who are just trying to make a name for themselves. So I'm inclined to say it's not a coincidence, but it's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it's probably it's a little of both. It's an outlier, and it's uh, yeah, it may be uh, pertinent to the time. Um, let's let's talk about their different views now. Let's start by uh, talking about tradition in the past. You've already covered it a little bit, but talk about how they viewed uh, – Burke and Payne viewed tradition in the past. Well, so because Burke believed uh, that human beings were fundamentally limited, that our, that our knowledge and our power and what we could achieve was constrained by, uh, by limits that were permanent, by limits that were part of our nature, he thought that, the, that what we ought to do to make progress was to build on the best of the past. And this meant that he thought that every country, every society should be very, very aware of its own history and should try to understand what's best about itself uh, and build on it. That means really a belief in tradition. And I stress the way it's connected to his ideas about knowledge because I think it's absolutely crucial. There are a couple of different ways you can think about tradition. Uh, one is to say that things used to be better in the past and we should cling to them and we should uh, we should do as our fathers did because they were privy to knowledge we didn't have, or that they, uh, you know, that, that that they were privy to revelation that we don't have direct access to. This is the way a lot of traditionalists think about tradition: that human history is a kind of downward slide, and so we should do what people in the past did because those times were better. There's a more modern sense of tradition, which is very much Burke's sense, which is the present is better than the past, but it's better because history has been a, a process of gradual evolution. And what evolution really means in this historical sense, just as in the biological sense, is that you learn from mistakes. You try things, you keep what's working, and you drop what's not working. So that ultimately you're making incremental gradual improvements at the margins, and you get better and better. This is more or less what Burke takes tradition to mean. And he says we can't know in a fully rational way what it is that's working, say, about the English system. Um, we know that it works, its structures, its forms contain more knowledge than any individual can rationally possess, and so we should be careful in our approach to it, in our improvements of it, in our changes to it, understanding that it's a system that contains more genius that, than we're going to be explicitly able to discern, and so we should try to build on it to the extent possible. Uh, we should approach it, he says at one time, as physicians rather than engineers, which I think is a wonderful way to think about the difference between these. Yeah, I constantly, uh, I constantly mention on this program that that uh, economics is best thought of as uh, biology rather than physics or history rather than physics, and 
similarly, we should be thinking of ourselves as gardeners uh, rather than yeah. uh, engineers. Right. And yet most of modern economics is engineering, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So Brooks' analogy to make the same point is to medicine. He says doctors don't have an exact definition of what health is, and they also don't understand everything about the human body, but they know how to tell when someone's sick, and they have an idea of what it looks like when someone's healthy, and they just do what they can to to, to, to turn the former into the latter. Paine believes ultimately that politics is applied principle, and so that um, it has to start from the right pr philosophical principles, and it has to apply them absolutely, because those principles are the natural truth about human beings, and politics can only be just at the end of the day if it's if it's true to those facts about ourselves, to our equality, uh, to our liberty essentially as individuals. And so politics, to the extent that it has that it has uh, differed from these, which has been a very great extent throughout human history. That explains all of the evils we've seen, all of the war, all of the oppression, all of the poverty. And what, what the modern enlightenment science of politics allows us to do is to see finally what the right principles are, and so we ought to put them into effect. And so he has very little interest in political tradition. He doesn't think that we should start by learning from the past. He thinks that we should start by understanding the right principles of politics. We should throw off the past and to the extent we can, build a politics on the right foundations. And so uh, he really believes in starting over and believes that that's what the American Revolution was about and believes that that's what the French Revolution could make possible. You know, you do an amazing job. It at least appears to this uh, amateur. You do an amazing job being fair uh, to Payne, who you confess to not being as sympathetic to. And it really is what one of the factors that makes the book so enjoyable. Uh, there's never a sense of a feeling that you're grinding an axe. And I think uh, my suggestion for you is that you make a video where you uh, impersonate each each man wearing different clothes, going back and forth across the a debate where you could voice their opinions on particular issues as you're doing now. You do it ex ex exceedingly well. Um when we think about that, those two different views of tradition in the past, and I want to bring it to the present, um, again, it's very difficult to sell the Burkean view uh, to the American public. Uh, modern politicians don't find that effective, saying that, ah, oh, well, you know, so-and-so's got a good proposal, but we don't really know its full effects. I mean, it, it's um, it's remarkable how how easy it is to sell snake oil to the American public without having much worry about being blamed for the consequences that come from complex systems. And I, you know, I'm, um, throughout this, I'm thinking of my favorite Hayek quote, which I haven't mentioned in a few episodes, listeners out there, which is the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. And standing mm -hmm. athwart of progress like that is a very difficult sell for a modern politician. Do you have any thoughts on how that might be changed? Um, what advice? Yeah, you well, of course, that's that's one of the great challenges before conservatives uh, in in our in our country, and 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 I agree up to a point that it, that certainly it's hard to make the case for skepticism in politics. Political life is just not well designed to enable politicians to uh, to make a, a a zealous case against zealotry. Um, I, I think that. 
we live now in a time, 50 years after uh, the, the, the birth of the Great Society, when uh, American voters may actually be much more open than we think to the idea that we should try things out before we make them, uh, b- before we apply them to the country as a whole. That is, to a politics of experimentation, of trial and error, to a case about how we solve problems that's different from how uh, the federal government now goes about solving problems. And I think that conservatives stumble around that case when we talk about markets uh, as, as models for policy, market-oriented healthcare policy or education policy, this and that. But we don't explain it very well. To my mind, what that means is really about how we know what works and what doesn't. So markets work by a kind of three-step process where there's a great deal of room for experimentation to try different ways of providing people with what they want or need. There's there's evolution. I mean, there's evaluation where consumers can uh, choose for themselves what's working and what's not, decide what's good and bad. And then there's evolution, which is simply keep what works, drop what doesn't work. Those three steps basically are how markets work. Markets arrange incentives for everybody to pursue that process. And you can see fairly plainly how that leads to incremental, constant improvements in outcomes. Government programs obviously don't work that way. They don't allow for any of those three steps. There's no room for experimentation when you have very prescriptive regulatory approaches to policy. There's no evaluation because people getting the service or the good or the benefit are never asked if it's working or not. They're not the ones who decide what happens. And there's no evolution because programs never go away. We're going to spend $8 billion on, on, uh, on, on uh, pre-K programs next year that we literally know don't have any effect because interests build up around them and they never go away. What conservatives are arguing for a lot of the time, when they're making the right arguments anyway, is, the, is to move from that model of the welfare state to more like the three-step problem-solving model of the market. It doesn't mean markets in the sense of the profit motive or consumerism. It means markets in the sense of figuring out how to solve problems on the ground in a continuous learning way. And I think there is room to make that case to the public, and I don't think that we've tried and failed to do that. I just think we have not tried to do that well. And, you know, it seems to me as we as we watch the public's reaction to, to Obamacare, as we think about the public's views about government in general, if someone were to make that case, were to say these are complicated problems, we can't begin by assuming we know how to solve them. We have to put in place systems that allow us to figure out how to solve them in an ongoing way. The public wouldn't think that's crazy. And it's what conservatives offer in practice in a lot of ways. That's what school choice is. That's what the conservative approach to health care looks like. But we are not very good at describing that to the public and explaining it. Isn't, isn't federalism one way of trying to introduce the trial and error aspect of markets into government policy that, that we – have some of in America. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. Trying different things in different places, seeing how they work. There's an inclination, even among conservatives, to, to approach that as, uh, I, I mean, I, I think we, we refer to the states as laboratories in the sense that they're going to figure out in Wisconsin what works and then we're going to do it everywhere. But really, that's even that is not what is yeah, meant that's by <laughs> this kind of process because it's not going to work everywhere. We actually have to have a continuous process of kind of on-the-ground problem-solving. And I think that does mean devolving a lot of, of service provision to private providers, using the government uh, to create incentives to experiment with different ways. So it's more than federalism, but federalism is certainly an essential part of it. 
in a country this big, almost no national program is going to have much of a chance of working. Let's start with let's stick with that healthcare example for a minute. Uh, I'm reminded of the um, the parody of the Tea Party, or it's probably true in some case or another. Of, you know, government, get your hands off my Social Security. Yeah. Meaning, uh, I'm I'm a Burkean. I like things the way they are. Don't don't shake things <laughs> up. And I think about that because you know my preferred healthcare system would. Um, would be very, very – but I don't know what adjective to put to it, but my preferred would be to get the government out of it. I would prefer to see uh, consumers pay with their own money. I'd get rid of the subsidies that government provides for health care through both explicit programs like Medicare and Medicaid as well as the tax subsidies of, of private health care. Uh, I'd want to see poor people helped via private charity. And all the ways that that would flower and blossom if government weren't involved uh, providing it and using our taxes. And uh, that would be my solution. Now, does that make me a Burkean or, or a pain kind of guy? Because I'm kind of saying I – mean, I want to start from scratch. I don't want to build on what we already have. I think the, the defense of Obamacare to a large extent is, well, we have this really complicated system doesn't work so well or it's being strained right now so we have to we have to tweak it but we don't want to start from scratch so how does it how does that come down uh, how do these dif- respect for tradition and, and taking the best and trial and error uh, I I think I'm a pain guy with the Burkean kind of solution or am mm-hmm. I not well I'll tell you this is this is one of the one of the questions that's come up most from serious readers of this book which is if you look at the politics today it's conservatives who are trying to change everything. And liberals are just trying to keep all of our entitlement programs and other government programs exactly the way they are. So having the two sides sort of switched. Yeah. And I, I, That's I think better, it's very better phrase. That, better phrase than my version. Thank you. No, I mean, I, I do think we sometimes see now conservatives very eager to transform our, our governing institutions in pretty profound ways. And we find liberals very protective of uh, every last uh, inch of the welfare state. But I think that, that that is a kind of second-order argument about political change. The right, um, the right does begin, as Burke does, in, in gratitude for the good and skepticism about our ability to rebuild society from scratch. The left in a kind of outraged at the injustice of the status quo. But the debate about preserving our entitlement system and, and government programs is, in general is a debate about reforming a set of welfare state institutions that are themselves intended to advance a particular vision of change. And that vision is a progressive kind of archetype that Paine certainly would have recognized. It's an egalitarian ideal of justice that's advanced through the application of of technical expertise. Um, It's a very, very technocratic approach to solving problems. And opposing it is a more conservative ideal that Burke would have found uh, familiar. It's a case for addressing social problems through evolved social institutions, like like civil society, like markets, that tacitly contain and convey more implicit knowledge uh, within a within a liberal framework. And so, as I said, I do think conservatives are arguing for a uh, a much more Burkean approach to solving these problems, where in healthcare. The, the basic difference of opinion between left, right and left, we've got a very inefficient system. The left says we make it more efficient by centralizing it and subjecting it to expert control. The right says we make it more efficient by decentralizing it and, uh, and allowing it to be, to be the, the sum of its parts, run on the ground between buyers and sellers. 
So I, I think that the right is being very Burkean about that, and the left is, uh, is being very uh, technocratic or progressive, and in some respects, therefore, uh, Paynean about it. Um, you know, obviously, it's impossible to draw a straight line from, uh, from the late 18th century to the early 21st century. And I would not suggest that Burke and Paine are um, – that the relationship between Burke and today's right, say, is a kind of genealogical relationship. That we're descended from his point of view. But I think that the two, that the, the two dispositions to politics arise almost inevitably in a free society like ours, and that Burke and Paine articulate those dispositions more clearly than almost anybody. And so we learn an enormous amount about how we think about really basic questions – uh, by looking at them. And I think the way conservatives think about these basic questions is still very much Burke's way, even though uh, we're the ones today arguing for some serious changes. Very very well said. I want to ask you, though, about a third disposition, which would be the libertarian disposition, yeah. uh, which I'm roughly in that camp. I sometimes describe myself as a classical liberal, and having read your book, I feel like it's even better description because then I can take both Paine and Burke when I need to right. to support to support my views. But where does libertarianism fit into this um, into this discussion? Yeah, it's a very good question. It's a complicated question. Um, libertarianism, of course, uh, you know, is many things. Contains multitudes, uh, and libertarian different libertarians emphasize different things. There is a, a strong and important strand of libertarianism that is very Burkean because it is it, it emphasizes especially uh, the limits of our knowledge and a kind of skepticism about the uses of power. Yep. And so ultimately believes um, that power needs to be restrained because there are permanent limits on what we can do. And that's my, those Burke, that's my, Burkean, that's my Burkean side. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it inclines many libertarians to, uh, to market economics and to restraints on the role of government and the power of government. And in that sense, aligns them with a lot of conservatives who think more like Burke. There's also an important strand of libertarianism that is very utopian. Um, about what freedom can make possible, yeah. uh, and especially in social life. That is that um, by liberating people from moral constraints and traditional social and cultural constraints, we can make possible a degree of liberty that will, that will enable a degree of human happiness that's otherwise not possible. That's also a very important part of libertarianism, and that is a very, very Paynean way of thinking. Um, the sense that uh, the, the problems we have are functions of restraints on us, and so that those restraints ought to be lifted. Um, there, there's a lot about pain that is fairly libertarian, and pain, in fact, starts out uh, believing in the importance of restraints on government, although by the end of his career, by the beginning of the 19th century, uh, pain is making a case for a kind of proto-welfare state. And he shows us, among other things, the ways in which Radical individualism, which is an important part of of the left's point of view, but is also part of a lot of libertarian attitudes, the way in which radical individualism leads to statism, because by insisting that society consists only of individuals and government, they ultimately argue uh, that anything that, it, that individuals can't do, government should do. And that's an argument you hear now from American progressives. You hear, you know, if you look at uh, at President Obama's second inaugural address. He literally says that. Um, you have Barney Frank saying, uh, government is the things we do together. Um, Burke 
answered this argument yeah, by saying, that. actually, I hate that because we don't do yeah. any of it together. It's a it's exactly. a romanticization of the political process that has no empirical support when gazed at with any scrutiny. Yeah. It's the strangest thing. But it, you know, it's a function of radical individualism because it's a function of the view that individuals ultimately uh, don't belong to smaller groups, uh, don't belong to uh, don't clump together, yeah. but have to be understood individually. Burke answered this by saying the life of a society happens between the individual and the state, in 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 the family, in the community, in civil society, as we would now describe it, uh, and in the market. Um, and so, the most important things about society uh, are are what we see in that space between the individual and the state. Paine made an argument that a lot of progressives today make, which is that what happens in that space is actually illegitimate that what you have in that space between the individual and the state are a lot of undemocratic power centers, right? Who elected the Catholic Church to tell us what to do or to run a hospital or to whatever, to run a school? Uh, all of these institutions don't have any authority. They don't have legitimate authority, and they need to be cleared out. And not only that, but they often provide shelter for, for certain attitudes and prejudices that don't belong in a free society. And so Payne argues, he describes them as a as a wilderness of turnpike gates between the individual and his rights. Um, and this is an argument that's still very important. Very popular. Of, uh, yeah. yeah. And so I, I think that that's a concern that libertarians should be alert to, which is that the sort of individualism that they incline to can be very, very dangerous to the kind of freedom that they value. Yeah, I don't, I don't, um, you know, my personal take on this is that uh, libertarians, especially uh, economists, don't spend enough – they spend too much time defending the market and not enough time defending civil society. Uh, mm -hmm. And and it encourages – part of it just a matter of taste and expertise, but it encourages people to treat civil society or, or non-governmental solutions as therefore business-oriented. I mean that's the worst extreme is if uh, a, a church, synagogue – mosque, uh, charity, uh, club, all those incredible institutions that and communities that we voluntarily choose, that, that, that they're somehow – we just forget about those and we just think about profits as the thing that drives improvements. And that's – that I think is, is the mistake that libertarians uh, or at least economists make in defending, say, smaller government. I think they miss – and they don't put enough emphasis on those those voluntarily chosen communities of which we join many. So when you talk about radical individualism, certainly I think that radical individualism is the way to think about human flourishing. But but that radical individualism, because it's voluntary, allows the choices we make are voluntary. The, the right ones are voluntary. Yeah. That allows us to to join communities more than one. They might be religious. They might be social. They might be. Uh, recreational and, and athletic. There are all these things we do, and, and we cut across lots of, of spheres, and it's beautiful, and we should be celebrating that and, and not ignoring yeah. it. Absolutely. I, I, I would push back in one way. I think Burke poses one challenge to that view that ought to be thought about, which is he says that it's a view that emphasizes choice a little too much because a lot of the most important institutions that we're part of aren't really chosen, especially first and foremost the family, uh, which of course in some respects is a choice, but in some very, very important respects is not a choice. And familial obligations are ones that define the shape of society and the shape of human lives. 
in ways that are not always chosen, uh, but that are uh, almost always mandatory or uh, oblige us in ways that we can't easily escape. But he says even the idea that, uh, that, that each of us chose his own religion is unrealistic. Um, you know, most people haven't Certainly. thought through whether in fact their father's religion is exactly right. Or lack it's of their it. religion. Yeah. And, or lack of it, exactly. And so he, he, I think he would agree with a lot of the description you're laying out, but he would say that choice is not as much at the center of it as we sometimes like to believe, and that we shouldn't overemphasize that, because at the end of the day, a lot of the ways we live really are functions of the world we were born into, and we have to be grateful for the good about that world and try to fix the bad about it without insisting that it's good because we chose it. It's, it's, a, fascinating, it's a fascinating point. I, but let me concede it, right? Let, let me agree with Burke. It's certainly true that many of the things that affect our lives are not chosen. I mean, I always think about being born in America, credible yep. uh, blessing that, that I have no control over. Um, we could think about property rights and uh, the places we start as, as children, the houses we're born into. Uh, mm -hmm. I was born into a lower middle class family and have – and done better than my parents, uh, but that's hard to do for some people. So uh, we don't have the freedom. So let's why don't we talk? Let's let's talk about redistribution then in in that setting uh, and property rights. There is a t conservatives tend to say, well, you know, we got to take things as they are. We can't start from scratch. We can't sell off all the land and reallocate it more fairly or anything because it's, it's we're going to have all kinds of uh, unintended consequences from that. How would how do Burke and Payne? You talk about a little bit in the book. How do they view the yeah. welfare state? Well, Payne is in some respects one of the fathers of the welfare state, and it's another way in which we uh, Americans tend to, especially conservatives, tend to think of of the idea of the welfare state as an import from Europe that uh, is sort of foreign to our way of thinking. It's Bismarck. Bismarck's who yeah, and, right, and that's, Bismarck, and he's nasty. So that's that's, a, that's always an attractive right. uh, person to attribute the parentage to. Yeah, German and terrible are basically synonyms for, for in our political vocabulary. Prussian, yeah. Yeah, and Paine shows that that's not quite right. Paine uh, makes an argument, and it's a very, very interesting and careful argument for how beginning from Lockean principles, from the premises of our own political uh, way of life, can lead us to a very great role for government in redistributing some wealth from the rich to the poor. He says that Locke shows us that the earth belongs to everyone in common, um, originally, but also that property is absolutely essential to human progress, that the solution to the problem of the poor is not to eliminate property. That would be a disaster. But that means that people who possess property have something that belongs to everybody else that they're not uh, allowing those others to benefit from. And he argues ultimately that there ought to be a general tax um, that is used to create a general fund that would provide some benefits to people, uh, to new parents when a child is born, to every person when he or she turns 21, and to every person when he or she turns 50, which is sort of a way of thinking about the retirement age in the 18th century. Yeah. This is Payne um, talking now. This is Payne, yeah, yeah. it's Payne talking. He, t he describes this as an extension of a kind of Lockean state of nature, of course, but uh, it's really novel. It's his, he's more or less the first person to make this kind of argument. 
And he says, our own way of thinking about where our own political system came from suggests that people with a great deal of property should be taxed some so that people with no property should get some benefits for their participating in society. And uh, this begins to make an argument for the welfare state that is a liberal argument, ultimately. Burke is very, very resistant to this idea, and his particular problem with it is that he insists again and again that it should not be thought of in terms of a right. He says it may well be that a good society would decide uh, as, a, as, as a matter of charity that it ought to provide some benefits to the poor through its government. Maybe that's the best way to do it. Maybe it's not. But it's not a matter of right. There's no, there, there's no way in which one person is entitled to the property of another person. And he thinks that the difference between those two things is an extraordinarily important difference. Uh, that it, it's, a, it's an entirely different way of thinking about the relationship between the individual and his society. So that in his, in his economic views, uh, which he didn't articulate all that much, but there's one essay written toward the end of his life, originally written actually as a memo to the prime minister, uh, to William Pitt, in opposition to price controls in agriculture and to wage controls, where he makes this kind of argument that is a very, very Adam Smith capitalist argument. Um, and so what we can see from Burke and Payne is that the, the premises that liberals and conservatives start from lead in some ultimately pretty straightforward, natural ways to a difference of opinion about economics and about the, the obligations of a society uh, to the poor that, you know, that would be pretty familiar to somebody looking at American politics now. Of course, at that time, again, late 18th century, uh, wealth was typically uh, land, uh, title, and certain class privileges that came maybe with title – they didn't have – couldn't imagine the flourishing of prosperity that has emerged yeah. since then where much of wealth isn't inherited and passed on. It's created. It's yeah. um, it's a transformation. And so you'd have to uh, – they'd probably look at it a little bit differently. I think that's right. And, and, and there's another thing they didn't imagine which which was even closer to their time, which is when you look at their economic writings – and this is true of, of Adam Smith too – the striking thing about it is that they did not foresee the Industrial Revolution, which in some ways was even already beginning, um, in, especially in Britain, uh, in the time they were writing. But they couldn't see the scale that it was about to reach. And so one way in which their disagreements are don't sound contemporary, don't sound like they might have just happened uh, last year, is when they talk about the scale and character of the economy, both in terms of the sort of wealth that could be produced and in terms of industrialization and what, what the, the market economy looks like, neither Burke nor Payne really had quite a sense of how transformative uh, that was about to be. Neither did Adam Smith, of course, um, no. in terms of the scale. But I was thinking about Smith often while I was reading, reading the yeah. book, uh, partly because I'm writing a book on Smith, but partly because he's the contemporary of both of them. Uh, did either of his books, uh, the... Uh, wealth of nations or the theory of moral sentiments influence uh, either man. That, that's yeah. they, obviously um, you say they, they Burke and Smith uh, corresponded, but I'm curious yeah. if you can find specific places in say Burke's writing where you feel there's a, a Smithian element. Yeah, but, 
Burke was very, very influenced by Smith. He said so, and it's also pretty clear. Uh, he read the theory of moral sentiments as a fairly young man. He wrote a review of it in the Annual Register, which was a, a sort of annual review of the important books of the year, and uh, a very glowing review that suggests that he uh, that he took it to be a very, very profound book. And Burke's emphasis on the sentiments in politics, on the importance of thinking in terms of uh, of human attachments and human sentiments, of uh, how important it was for the statesman to think uh, about the, the the ways in which politics influenced people's uh, moral understanding, is very very shaped by by Smith. It's clear later in his life that Burke was also influenced by Smith's economic views. Um, Paine. Paine is also a capitalist. He's not, uh, and in fact, there's a there's a funny uh, passage in the uh, in in Paine's book, The Rights of Man, which is a response to Burke's reflections on the revolution in France, where he criticizes Burke's economic views and says, if Burke had read The Wealth of Nations, he would understand uh, that what's going on here would actually be great for commerce. Uh, and so he takes himself to be the Smithian in the debate, and in some respects, he was. Um, so I think they were both somewhat influenced by Adam Smith, but Burke is much closer to Smith in his uh, in his basic disposition. And there was a period in, in in Burke's life when he and Smith were fairly close, were were fairly friendly, where there are a lot of letters. Uh, it, it's a fairly short period. It's not clear exactly why they stopped corresponding, but uh, around the time of the American Revolution, the two of them corresponded quite a bit. And Smith sends Burke all kinds of encouragement letters. Uh, supporting his views about the uh, about the American War and uh, and his views about the importance of commerce and trade, Burke was the member for Bristol then, which was the the largest port city in in Britain, and uh, it was easy for him to be in favor of trade. But uh, but it's clear that he also uh, meant it. Uh, let's talk about uh, Burke's respect uh, for norms and the role of passion, um, which uh, I'm. I'm in total agreement with, but then he's very also reverent, reverential toward authority. Uh, talk about where that comes from, how opposite Paine's sentiment is on that, and how a modern might defend that Burkean uh, view of authority, which is very out of fashion today among among the uh, the correct circles. Yeah, it's true. Burke Burke values stability and continuity, and. Um, and so he is averse to uh, to sharp breaks and is averse to sharp fundamental criticisms of the English system, which means that at the end of the day, he's fairly protective of uh, of the powers that be. And although he was quite critical of royal power for a lot of his career, and uh, a lot of the early work that he did in Parliament was about restraining the involvement of the king in everyday politics, was about restraining the spending of the royal family, he was nonetheless always protective of the idea that government authority in the British system, because of the nature of the system, is legitimate authority, and that it was very important on the one hand to to retain that legitimacy, that is to make sure that the government was not abusing it, but also on the other hand to respect that legitimacy. Um, and so he was not a great fan of the radicals in his own party. Burke was a Whig. Uh, of the uh, of the people arguing for a truly republican system in in Britain for a break with the monarchy, um, you know he believed that that the British uh, form of government was an essential part of Britain's traditions, and that respect for uh, those traditions required a certain respect for government authority. 
Um, Payne had a much more American attitude about this. Payne basically said, if government is legitimate, then I'll respect it. If it's not, then I won't. And the test of that is not in its history, but in what it's doing and how it's using its power. Um, that's an idea that we're much more liable to recognize and, uh, frankly, is the most appealing thing about Payne to me, which is he ultimately says to be respected, you have to be respectable. And, um, and that strikes me as quite right. It is a way in which, and Burke himself recognized this, in which Americans, even in that time, uh, were different. In one of his great American speeches, speeches about the American Revolution uh, to Parliament, Burke says one of the things we have to understand about the Americans is that they are always alert to abuses of government power, and they believe they're happening constantly, hmm. and we have to be very careful not to prove them right, because... <laughs> As soon as we prove them right, they'll assume that all their paranoia is justified, and uh, and that's basically what happened. And so, uh, you know, I share that American attitude, and so that the the implicit respect for all authority that Burke does exhibit um, is not much a part of American conservatism, and I think that's justified. We're we're American conservatives, and so we're conserving that uh, less reverential uh, strand of the uh, Anglo-American tradition. When I read there their uh, views side by side on various issues, I can't help but feel often that Payne uh, holds the moral high ground and and really uh, exults in it. Part of his rhetorical effectiveness strikes me as coming from the fact that he sees himself as the morally superior of the two positions, that Burke is the defender of, of tradition, of the status quo to some extent, and as a result, it's, again, easier to romanticize uh, Payne's position. And I think, again, that's a position in America today. The left holds mm -hmm. the moral high ground. Uh, what's your reaction to that? And what do you think uh, conservatives today ought to be doing to try to reclaim it, if, if at all, if they should? Yeah. Well, you know, I think Burke's response to that is basically that morality is not as simple as, as it seems. Uh, it's not just a set of abstract rules that you then apply directly to life. Morality has to speak to the realities, to the complexities of the human experience. And so he takes himself to hold the moral high ground, to say that uh, what he's advocating is a way of life that has proven in practice to be better for people, uh, including for the weak and the poor and the vulnerable. And what Payne is advocating um, is a highly abstract, radical break from that way of life that he thinks is going to be better. Um, and he, he thinks that Payne's way of thinking has a very, very high threshold to cross before it can justify itself. Um, as, you, as you say, it's a complicated argument to make because Payne, Payne's, Payne's approach to morality was very, very deeply shaped by the Quakerism of his father, which has a kind of simple approach to, to justice, which says in every instance, we have to prefer the interests of the weak to the interests of the strong, the interests of the poor to the interests of the rich. And it's very simple to know which is which. And, and so we need to make sure we're on the right side. Burke's concern is that this may be a way for individuals to live their lives, but it's not a way to think about how society should function. Society is inevitably going to be much more complicated than that. And the moral choices that statesmen have to make have to be understood uh, in their full context. I think that's true, but just as you say, uh, it's not always the easiest argument to make. And you argue that – you just said that Burke felt he had the moral high ground, and I, I have no doubt that's correct, that he did feel that way. I'm struck in today's discussions of these issues, whether it's inequality, the minimum wage, 
that so-called conservatives, and we I don't want to debate about who is and who isn't, but yeah. let's just lump them. Let's just be a little bit fast and loose for a moment. People who generally were, were opposing the expansion of government, a large group, those folks are, seem to me to be remarkably defensive about their viewpoint. And uh, as a result, it it does challenge their ability to market it. Uh, do you, do you yeah. sense that defensiveness? And, I and completely did, agree with that. Did Burke have any of that? I think it's an enormous problem for the right today. Um, did Burke have any of it? I, I, I wouldn't say so. I think Burke was quite confident, uh, maybe at times overconfident. He certainly uh, had a very confident rhetoric that his view ultimately uh, was the one justified by the understanding of morality that's available to us. Uh, it has a lot to do with his understanding of the limits of our knowledge, too. He thought that the access we could have to moral principles was only through the experience of society, so that at the end of the day, uh, different approaches to morality had to prove themselves in practice. And he thought he was defending a system that had worked very well. I think conservatives today don't often enough make the simple point that when it comes to economics, the market system that we're advocating has been the best thing that has ever happened to the poor in human history um, and has dramatically reduced extreme poverty around the world and is still doing it right now, uh, has been the way in which uh, the, 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 the needy and the vulnerable have been lifted up. It's worked far better than anything else we've ever tried, far better than anything the left is trying to do economically. And that that should matter. That's a very important fact. Um, beyond that, the, 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 the kind of society we're arguing for is a society that for... Uh, that for very solid reasons we believe is grounded in a way of life that helps advance the moral good, a way of life that helps people build the sort of lives they want, that makes government more effective at solving problems that people confront, uh, that gives people the room to build the lives they want and protects them from the worst risks that they might confront in modern life, rather than a society that says, this is the way and you have to do it, which again and again is how the left approaches the life of our society centralize, consolidate, exercise authority to push people into the right grooves, conservatives tend to think in terms of making that space. And I think if there's a, if there's a fundamental distinction at the end of the day between how Burke and Paine talked about their visions of government, it's that all of Paine's metaphors are metaphors of motion. There's a sense of that's where we have to go and we need to progress in that direction constantly. Burke's metaphors are metaphors of space. Uh, and he thought of government in terms of building a space for society to thrive. That was the role, the purpose, uh, the goal of government. I think that difference is still very much a difference between left and right. And to my mind, it's a difference that gives conservatives a moral high ground that uh, that we don't articulate enough to the public. Yeah, I think part of the problem, it seems to me, is that most people are not – most voters – are not ideologues. Uh, they're happy to look at the world on a case-by-case basis. And so when you say, I want to raise the minimum wage to say 10 or $15 an hour, the fact that capitalism, untrammeled, something hard to define again, but something like untrammeled capitalism has been of a great boon to the poor, they say, well, we can do a little better than that. And let's uh, let's set the minimum wage at $10 an hour, 15 And uh, conservatives have no good answer to that, uh, to, to my mind. And the the libertarian sort of the economist slash conservative libertarian answer is is look at the effect in this case. But the the past successes of capitalism don't don't weigh into the debate at all, for better or worse. Yeah. 
I, I think that's right. There's a way in which the left takes for granted uh, a, a thriving economy that just hums in the background, and the question is how to distribute the goods. We have to make the argument that that thriving economy, which makes possible the thriving life of this society, uh, has to be sustained and is a function of certain kinds of, uh, of, of attitudes toward law and order, of certain kinds of rules, certain kinds of liberties that have to be defended uh, both because they're right and because they're good. Uh, conservatives are nowhere near good enough at making that kind of case. Let's close with um, the death of each man and uh, what happened to their uh, remains. It's a, mm. There's a poignance there. Yeah, you know, both of them, each of them approached the end of his life uh, very concerned about his legacy. Uh, they, uh, th their debate was extremely heated. It never quite ended. The, 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 the ultimate outcome was very much in question. Uh, the, Brooke died in 1797 when uh, the British were basically at war with France, and there was a, a European war going on that resulted from, uh, from the, essentially the collapse of the revolutionary regime. And Burke was very concerned that ultimately the French would succeed and would uh, their ideas at least would come to Britain, and he would be understood as the foremost enemy of the new order, uh, he was he was literally worried that they would dig up his body from its grave and uh, and and make an example of him. He actually asked in his final days uh, to to be buried in an unmarked grave uh, away from the grave where his his young son who had passed away was, away from the plot uh, that was reserved for his wife. His family ultimately decided uh, that they should do what it said in his will rather than uh, what he had said uh, in in the throes of his illness, and uh, they buried him. On the family plot, it's still there um, next to his son. His wife was buried there a few years after. Um, and uh, as I say, he's still there in a, in, in a churchyard uh, in Beaconsfield in Britain. Payne, um, Payne came back to America after the revolution had turned ugly. Uh, it turned ugly uh, while he in was France. still in France. And he, uh, yeah, in France, uh, the French Revolution. He found himself in prison for several years. Uh, even after that, he well, on and off for several years. Even after that, he still remained in France and continued believing that it might work out. But ultimately, uh, in 1801, he returned to the United States. His very good friend, Thomas Jefferson, had become president. Um, Paine had uh, written a book, his last book, called The Age of Reason, which was a scathing attack against organized religion, uh, a, a, a scathing denunciation of Christianity. He wrote it while he was in France, and obviously enough, it was very poorly received in the United States. Um, and so when he returned, he was very poorly received in the United States. And um, by the time he died in 1809, uh, he was living in a kind of boarding house in Brooklyn, and uh, his funeral was very poorly attended. People certainly still held close the, the, the memory of all that he had done for the revolution, uh, and he had a lot of admirers, but he also thought that there was a great risk that uh, he wouldn't be well treated after his death. He actually asked in his will to be buried in a Quaker cemetery. Uh, his father was a Quaker, though he was not, uh, and the Quakers, again, because of what he'd written about Christianity, uh, declined, uh, refused to allow it, and so he was buried on his farm in New Rochelle, and he actually was, ultimately, uh, just a few years later, dug up by, uh, not in the way he expected, he was dug up by an English radical who was a great admirer of his, who wanted to take his body to Britain to build a monument uh, in, his, in, in the town of his birth. He took the body to Britain, but the British government 
uh, didn't allow the monument. Uh, again, Paine had not only argued against Christianity, but against monarchy. And so uh, this, this, this English radical, William Cobbett, uh, couldn't figure out what to do with Paine. And ultimately, we actually literally don't know what happened to his remains. Uh, the, the ultimate disposition is not known. It's, it, everyone presumes he was buried somewhere in Britain, but no one quite knows where. And, uh, you know, uh, poignantly enough, as you say, or ironically enough, uh, the, the, there's no burial ground. My guest today has been Yuval Levin. Yuval, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. His book is The Great Debate. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.